Today is going to be a very special Edward Mullen podcast for two reasons. Number one, I'm doing it by myself. Actually, you know what? That is the only special reason. So cue the music. All right, so um, a little bit of a housekeeping before we get the show started. Number one, I um, haven't been doing a lot of podcasts, and that's simply because uh, if you're not famous, and it's very difficult to get interesting guests on your show. Uh, the friends that I have are not necessarily willing or uh, you know interesting in, in the sense that they're you know famous stand-up comedians or movie stars. They they're just pretty ordinary people, um, which is fine. I, I do reach out to those people. I have a one of my doctor friends is on the episode. Uh, one of my cop friends is on the episode, and those are about as interesting. I, I have other interesting friends, but um, but it's really kind of hard to uh, to get interesting people on the show. Um, Sarah, for the most part, Sarah and I have just been doing the podcast together, um, but she expressed uh, that she doesn't really enjoy doing it. Um, she doesn't really like the whole debate style and, and arguing style, um, that, that I enjoy. She would rather just kind of yap about some stuff. So we'll see how this goes. This is just going to be me yammering on about a bunch of stuff. Not too sure how long it'll go, but, um, uh, it'll count as a podcast. So let's get this show started. All right. So there's a few things that have been kind of on my mind yesterday, Sarah is preparing to do her taxes and she asked me about something about what form does she need to claim the interest on her savings account. And I've never had a savings account. I just put it into a stock account or a checking account. So I didn't know that you could get taxed on savings. But of course, now that I think about it, you probably could considering it's income. And how kind of gross is that? I mean, the government gets you every way possible. They get you on uh, the money coming into your account, uh, the money going out. So if you, say, earn $10, they'll tax you on that. You buy something, there's tax on that. The person who receives that $10 it now becomes their income and they are get taxed on that. And we have no accountability of where our tax money is going, right? It seems like there's we're paying too much tax. And oh yeah, and, there, and it doesn't stop there. There's tax on everything, a house tax, property tax. You can't own your property out. Uh, you basically lease the land from the government. So eventually you're kind of working against this. Um, I don't even know what you want to call it, but yeah, essentially you have to make more money than the government's funneling out, which is always going to be the case because it's kind of a progressive tax system. But anyway, point is, you got to get rich. How do you do that? This article I, I wrote a few days ago, it was published on EliteDaily.com called The Evolution of Money. And I also post it on my uh, blog, at platosacademic.wordpress.com, which is uh, also available on my website. I have links to it. Uh, I post all my articles on my blog as well, even some that don't make it on Elite Daily. Anyway, the nature of the article was basically where money came from and kind of where it's going. Um, it started off as, uh, you know, in a barter system. So, you know, in the olden days, you'd be, say, a wagon maker, and you would show up to the town market with your wagons, and you would need some bread and some chicken and some, some salt or whatever you need, and you'd try to trade your goods for other goods that you need, right? So, you know, you trade a chicken for a pound of salt or... Uh, you, your shoe cobbler, you trade those for a table or something. But the problem with that is that it's really inefficient. You can't have, um, you know, the, the, the relative value of things is not easily defined. So how many chickens does it take to, to equate a table or something? Or say I only wanted half a chicken and what is that going to be, you know, cost me half a table? It's not really clear, right? And you also have to kind of show up at the market the same time the table maker shows up. Uh, he has to be willing to accept your goods for his. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of problems. So there clearly need to be a better way. So that way, the uh, that's why the next evolution of the money was um, commodities, 
Um, by the way, uh, I say I stated in the article that the barter system is still used today. We still do trades, um, and it's advantageous to do so because you can't get taxed on it. It's very difficult to tax a chicken or a table. You don't, you know, the government doesn't accept pounds of salt as payment, right? So that's kind of one advantage. The second evolution of, uh, and the second step of money is um, commodities. So you had some sort of uh, tangible item that uh, conferred some value. So the earliest forms of commodities were seashells and stones, precious gems, gold, silver, that kind of thing. So, you know, everybody would kind of agree that this was worth something. And then they would accept it as payment. This kind of lubricated the transaction uh, in the sense that you could kind of uh, divide up the value of something with stones or these commodities, right? So, for instance, if a table was worth uh, three and a half chickens, well, that's a difficult transaction to make. But if it's, you know, 11 gemstones, well, that's much easier, right? Um, but there's problems with that, right? So, and by the way, the uh, commodity market is still strong. Well, I shouldn't say strong, but still is traded today. You have uh, people trade gold and silver and uh, like, I guess to some extent jewelry. But um, but yeah, so people would carry around large quantities of gold and silver and and whatnot, and it would be unsafe. They would be uh, they'd be afraid that they'd get robbed or something like that. And nor did they want to stash it back at their place, their house, especially if they're wealthy because they didn't want to get robbed, right, and lose all their their uh, entire life savings. So there needed to be another, a next step, another evolution of money. So what happened was it turned into what's called receipt money. So these people would deposit their gold, let's say, into a bank, or at that time it would just be some trustworthy person, uh, who agreed to store it for you, and uh, in turn, he would give you a receipt, which represented the value of your deposit. So you could walk around with paper, which is much more easy, easier to uh, to transfer and carry and whatnot, and everyone agreed that this receipt was money, so they accepted it, and that's all fine. And that still goes on today, things like, you know, checks and debit cards, um, bank drafts, those are all forms of receipt money. The next evolution of that, though, is the uh, fractional reserve banking. Basically, these bankers had so much money in their vault because, you know, after a while, you if you have the receipt money, you don't actually need to ever take out your gold because everybody accepts receipts. The customers have no use for their the stuff they have in their vault. So what the banks did is they started lending it out to people uh, with interest, right? So this is kind of a first form of how money was printed. So the bankers, they have all this reserve in their vault. So they start lending it out to people and uh, they issue a receipt of debt. So, you know, I'll lend you 100 gold coins and you pay me back 110 gold coins or something like that. And, you know, they continued to do this until they had no more money in the vault. I mean, why, if you think about it, they just got greedy, really. Why would they hold on to money if they could lend it out? So, uh, and the only problem with doing that is that they could get away with it, provided that everybody doesn't all come back and want their gold out, which is called a run on the bank. Essentially, if everybody comes back on, on Thursday and all wants their gold and the deposit, the bank is empty, then it's bankrupt, right? So that's a problem. The um, And that happened a lot uh, throughout history. So the next evolution of, of money from receipt money would be fractional reserve banking, which basically allows the bank to lend out like a multiple of your deposit. So for instance, uh, you deposit $100, uh, they are able to lend out $1,200. So it's a 12 to 1 ratio right? So this is a huge problem because, uh, number one, the banks are essentially printing money. They're putting more money into the market, into the system that should be. And that causes inflation, which if you don't know, is basically a surplus of money into the economy, which uh, drives down the value because there's, you know, laws of uh, supply and demand. There's so much of it that uh, it's so abundant that, um, you know, merchants drive up the price for everything because, you know, if 100 people are coming to your store for 10 goods, 
you know, let's say like some milk, you only have 10 jugs of milk and 100 people want it. Well, guess what? The price of the milk is going up to the person who can pay the most. And that's essentially what it is. Everybody's walking around with money and there's so few goods. So the demand is high, supply is low. uh, You drive up the price, right? Okay, so you deposit the $100, let's say, and you get 3% of interest. Uh, They pay you 300. Let's do it like per year. So you earn $3 on that $100, right? They lend out $1,200 at 10%, right? So they get back $120, you know, 10% of of 1200 is 120. So on your $100, they give out three, but they make 120, right? So it's printing money. It's essentially, that seems kind of ludicrous. So the next evolution of money would be fiat money, which basically means that money, it's not backed by gold. So in the past, every dollar that was in uh, circulation would be represented by uh, some piece of gold in a bank vault, government bank vault. So you couldn't just print more money because you could, it kind of kept kept it stable because you can only print as much money as there is gold and gold is rare. And and that kind of kept things at bay. But uh, in 1971, President Nixon abolished the or severed the ties between gold and money, which means it was money was not backed by gold. It it, it didn't it represented nothing. You it could it was essentially like monopoly money. You could print as much as you want. And there's examples in history uh, with hyperinflation. I think it was Germany, which after the war was so indebted. Uh, to other countries, they said, well, you know, if I owe, say, France $10 billion, why can't we just print $10 billion and give it to France? Well, that's exactly what they did. But then when France get that, uh, got the $10 billion, they went to Germany and started buying stuff. And there's a huge surplus of money in the economy. And as I explained earlier, the supply and demand, uh, you know, the value of goods went up and Essentially, what that means is that it's not necessarily the the value. Let's say in this example of a milk, you have a jug of milk. It's not like that's increased in value. It's just, uh, you know, another way of looking at it is that the value of the money has depreciated. So you need more of it to buy the same thing, right? So, for example, you have a house in 1920 that's worth, you know, $40,000. Today, it's worth $2 million. Well, it's not that the value of the house has gone up. It's the same house, right? It's just that the money has become so devalued that you need more of it to buy the same thing. Essentially, the same argument I just gave. Uh, okay, so the value of the dollar was becoming less and less. German government, and if it's not Germany, forgive me, I think it was Germany, something like that. They started printing even more money because, you know, let's say a jug of milk now cost $20,000. They didn't have $20,000 personally, so they just started printing more of it, more of it, more of it, which actually accelerated the problem to uh, what's known as hyperinflation, which is a very adv- like um, advanced form of inflation where it goes quite rapidly. There's This is well documented where you'd have you know uh, pay breaks where you would work all day, but every two hours you'd get paid because by the next two hours the money that you got paid the previous two hours would be worthless. So you'd want to get your money, go into the market and buy stuff, you know, because by the end of the day, it was it was worthless. So they'd have pay breaks. Um, number two, uh, there's a, a story, I'm not sure if it's true, but a famous story of this woman with a wheelbarrow full of money trying to buy a loaf of bread, which now cost, say, whatever, $10 million. So she rolls up to the, the grocery store and goes in to get her bread, when she comes out, the wheelbarrow is stolen and uh, all the money is left there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's other cases where people are just burning money because it's cheaper than wood and stuff like that. So basically, that's an example of what can go wrong when you print money. Well, guess what? U.S. government does the same thing. If you look at the Federal Reserve, which is everybody should know by now is a non governmental entity it's a private organization owned by you know the elite bankers it's not even a bank it's not even a reserve they have no reserves they just print money and they lend it to the government at interest high interest rates which is essentially the taxpayers okay so i believe this was established in 1903 
I'm not sure if I get these dates right. Uh, so from 1903 till, let's say, I think 1984, there is about $800 billion of U.S. dollars in circulation. From 1984 to 2010, there was around 17 or $1,800 So it doubled in that amount of time because in 1971, President Nixon severed the ties uh, between gold and money. So you could just print as much as you want. And that's essentially what they did to bail out the banks. You'll notice the uh, TARP fund, the Troubled Asset Relief Plan or whatever it stands for. Um, they basically printed $700 billion to pump up the, the economy. This is basically Keynesian economics. You have these really large cyclical fluctuations which are known in the economy, which are known as booms and busts. So a boom is when things are going great. Uh, there's lots of work, uh, unemployment's low, and um, you know what what the uh, government tries to do to mitigate this is to uh, raise interest rates. That's one way they kind of flatten out these curves, so we don't get these huge highs and huge lows. They kind of want it in this middle of the road range. So they increase interest rates when the times are good. So uh, it kind of curbs borrowing right from the bank and uh when the bank lends money as i mentioned it puts more money in the economy just like a credit card would a, a credit card company gives you say five thousand dollar credit card you now have five thousand dollars that you didn't before you go spend that blah 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 inflation so uh adversely when in times of bust uh the government tries to pump up the economy artificially by infusing it with more money so they don't necessarily have money so they print it they put it into banks and lower interest rates to increase borrowing right problem is with this uh, with this downturn in the economy uh, most recently in 2008 2009 i guess we're still in it is that the reason why we got into that mess in the first place is the whole subprime mortgage and subprime lending is basically the idea where you lend money to people who don't qualify right so bank has all this money they want to lend out nobody qualifies well what are they going to do they can't make money on money that's just sitting in their vault so they just lower the requirements so they talk you into taking out a loan well this is two things number one they lend you money that they shouldn't so you buy a home you're say an average joe working uh you know construction you make let's say thirty thousand dollars a year you come in for a loan your credit is bad no problem they're going to give you two hundred thousand dollars for a house what if we gave you $500,000? Joe Blow says, well, I can't afford a $500,000 house. They say, hey, don't worry about it. The interest rates are low. You'll afford the payments. It's only 900 bucks a month. Don't worry about it. So Joe says, okay. He gets in over his head and he buys a $500,000 house that he can't afford. Well, guess what? Interest rates go up from 2% to 5% to 7% to 10%. And soon Joe can't afford the payments and he's screwed. But you know, in the olden days, the bank would kind of have your back. They would lend you money and they'd kind of be partners with you. They wouldn't want to extend themselves because it would be a risk to them if you didn't pay them back. But now they don't care because as soon as they sign a mortgage to you, they they sell it to, you know, one of these mortgage uh, houses like, you know, AIG and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which then turn it into a uh, security, which they sell on the open market. Not too sure how much I want to get into that, but essentially, well, yeah, maybe I should get into that. So yeah, basically, um, there's uh, kind of these rating companies called uh, uh, Moody's and Standard and Poor. You'll see the S and P 500 or you know that kind of thing. That Standard and Poor they basically rate uh, securities and that kind of thing. So they rated these mortgage-backed securities as AAA, which means it's the highest level. They're, you know, rock-solid investment, all that kind of stuff. And they peddled this stuff, you know, Lehman Brothers and, and Goldman and Sachs, they peddled this stuff to average folks, people that aren't educated in in finances. They don't know, right? Um, and so everybody bought up this stuff, which was worthless. And, you know, they dumped their shares allegedly whatever and made a you know when the when the mortgage-backed security price rose they dumped their shares made a killing everyone realized it was a house of cards it came collapsing down and it destroyed the economy the economy is down there's this 
thing called the paradox of thrift, which essentially means you fear your job might be in jeopardy and you don't have much money and interest rates are rising on your on your mortgage. Uh, you hold back. You maybe don't go on vacation or you don't buy that new sweater. You don't, you know, go out to dinner as often. You're basically being thrifty, right? But the problem with being thrifty is that everybody thinks like that, right? Or, you know, uh, I guess maybe everybody, even rich people, maybe tend to hold back a bit. But the problem with that is if everybody does that, then it kind of stifles the amount of transactions. It's uh, the economy essentially is run on buying and selling of goods. So if not a lot of people are running to the gap to buy sweaters, uh, they in turn don't buy as much or, or, you know, the gap, let's say in this example, doesn't buy as much sweaters from their manufacturer, which, you know, people are laid off at the manufacturing plant, people are laid off at the gap. Those people that are laid off the gap try to find work, but they can't because nobody else is hiring the money that they do have. They're not spending it, uh, you know, on, on things. So they're even more thrifty and it's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a downward spiral. Essentially, the more thrifty people are in a downward economy, it'll continue to go down until it hits some sort of point where things become cheap enough to kind of get things going again. Cause not everybody loses their job. Just, you know, some people, right? So, um, to avoid that, the government injects these piles of money into the economy to lift it up to this kind of mediocre or mid-level range. So they lower interest rates. So, hey, come get a loan. They, you know, increase money on credit cards. Um, they give it to banks. Oh, this is what they do when they give it to banks. Anyway, that's a huge problem. As we discussed, inflation, hyperinflation, and it might be going to that level. The economy is not looking good. There's so much unemployment and it doesn't seem to be getting better, right? You know, like the old adage, um, you know, most people were told were go to school, get a job, work hard, save your money, buy a house, buy a bigger house, uh, have a diversified portfolio, uh, save for retirement and, you know, then retire. That's essentially the model that most people live by, but... It's kind of a flawed model if you think about it. Number one, most of your money that you earn is going to be what's called earned income, which is taxed the most. So you go to you go to work and you get a paycheck and you have to give away, say, 40 to 50% of that paycheck immediately, right off the top. Well, how are you going to make ends meet when the government's taking such a big cut? Uh, the second thing, the second kind of income is kind of uh, what's called portfolio income, which is money that you earn from stocks and bonds and, and paper assets and that kind of thing, right? So, and the third form of income is what's called passive income, which is money that you get from, you know, operating or owning your own business and that kind of thing, right? So, uh, so earned income is taxed the most, portfolio income is taxed the second most, and passive income is taxed the least. So you, if you own a small business, there's huge tax advantages for you. The problem is not a lot of people are financially educated. And there's conspiracy theorists that go as far to say that this is deliberately orchestrated to keep people down. Um, the school system doesn't really teach people about money and managing finances. And they look back at, well, who started the school system? It was, you know, the John D. Rockefeller Foundation, one of the wealthiest families in the world. And they basically don't want people educated uh, about finances and money because it's easier to take money from people that don't know. When you use fancy words and you talk in complex languages like derivatives and P.E. ratios and market cap, people have no idea what you're talking about and they'll just hand the money over to you because they assume you know what you're talking about. Uh, but, you know, people are greedy and things like subprime mortgage lending and that kind of thing. It gets a little hairy when you start trusting other people with your finances. But it raises a good question. Why are financial education not promoted in school? The conspiracy theory goes that they want people to be obedient uh, to authority, uh, to be workers. That's why, you know, a typical day at school is, you know, from 7.30 in the morning or whatever it is until 3.30. They kind of get you trained to respond to bells and lunch breaks and and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, 
there's, you know, if you collaborate with a team on most things that is called cheating, like on a, say on exam, like in normal scenarios in life, you get to look things up on Google or you get to collaborate with people like, Hey man, do you know the answer to, to this problem I'm having? And you get to chat about it. But in school, you don't, if you do that, it's called cheating. They basically, and I can understand that there needs to be some kind of measure to gauge someone's intelligence. If they're doing the work, uh, it's not a perfect system. Second part of the conspiracy goes, well, why is it that the way we learn is not really the most efficient way? And why are, the inefficient ways of learning promoted and the efficient ways not promoted as much. You know, kids don't really perform well in school. Have you ever taken a test or, um, you know, studied something in college and the entire semester you're learning about something and then, you know, you take your finals and then a week later you've literally forgotten everything about that whole course. Um, it's it's really quite shocking. I remember writing a paper, a midterm paper about some thing. Well, I can't remember what it was. And uh, the, for the final exam, I, I reread my paper to kind of jog my memory about that topic. I had to reread my own paper. I had no idea. And it was like somebody else had written it. I, I had no idea what, it, what I was talking about. And uh, I had completely forgotten it. And it's really crazy how they cram, you know, five subjects on you at a time. And you have to read, you know, 100 pages a night and simulate that information for a test and then do the same thing the next week with five other courses. It's it's really inefficient. It's really crazy. And basically, this cone of learning says that the, the way people learn the least uh, in terms of re- long-term retention is reading. You only remember about 10% of the stuff that you read. Uh, the second worst way of learning is via lecture. So, um, you know, sitting in class and listening to somebody. But those are the two primary ways that are being taught in schools. I'm not sure that's a conspiracy, if that was conspired to be like that, or they just didn't have any other way. Uh, But, you know, the retention goes up in terms of uh, participation in group discussions and uh, learning, you know, via simulation, like actually doing. So actually doing something is... Uh, the best form of learning. So, you know, somebody like Richard Branson, who has never, uh, as far as I recall, he has no business education in terms of uh, academic education. He doesn't have an MBA, but he runs a billion dollar company. So, you know, it's kind of uh, interesting how you have people telling you to go to school and get a job or not, you know, not people telling you like it's some kind of conspiracy, but that's the general consensus that if you want to be successful in this life, you have to go to school and get a job and work hard, save and buy a house and retire and all that kind of stuff. Problem is there's no jobs. Um, the, The value of the education in school doesn't seem worth it, right? You know, students are coming out with $100,000 debt and then they can't get a job for $40,000. Uh, I'm not discounting education. In fact, I think education is key, right, to being successful. Uh, However, I think people should start to educate themselves in non-traditional means. So, you know, um, you can learn by doing, I think you get a little bit of basics from uh, reading. I don't think that's a problem. You go to the, the library, you can get all the same books that the MBA students learn, for instance, if you want to start a business. So yeah, all that information is out there. It's not like they're teaching secret information in schools, right? There's a lot of free lectures on online. And I don't know, I think most people aren't really motivated to do that. They have to kind of go to school and pay their money because if they didn't, they wouldn't do the work. And that's fine. If you are the type of person that you need to spend $100,000 and doing a bunch of things that aren't really valuable. Like when I was in school, I didn't really understand why I had to learn this stuff in 13, or it was like, uh, I think 13 weeks, 12 or 13 weeks, when the amount of information I could just learn in two weeks. So near the end of my degree, I, uh, I did distance ed. I did, you can't do this for every course, but you know, I had like five or six distance ed courses and I finished them all within two weeks, every single one of them, because the amount of information is not that much. Um, it's like, okay, you, you read this, you write a paper, you read this, you write a paper, you read this, you take a test. 
how hard is that? It doesn't take you 13 weeks. It's actually harder to do it over 13 weeks uh, for two reasons. One, because they stretch it out. You only meet, say, once a week. So by the time the next week rolls around, you've forgotten everything. Uh, Number two, when you're sitting in lecture, you have to listen to other kids yammer on about something that you're not interested in. And sometimes that can be beneficial. But uh, if you understand the material, that can be a huge waste of your time, right? So yeah, I mean, not everybody can really uh, be motivated to do that, and and that's fine. But um, it's a different model as uh, it maybe was in the past, where you don't need to necessarily go to school and get a degree because everybody has degrees now, and they're not really valuable unless you have a master's or a doctorate or or something like that. Uh, I think I was reading this article the other day how the number of um, applicants to law school has dropped like twenty percent, which is the most it's 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 always gone up every single year except this year and it dropped by a huge percent 20 percent is huge considering that it never drops at all and the reason is is because there's no lawyer jobs right unless you this is according to the article unless you go to like a reputable school like yale or harvard and you graduate at the top of your class then you're not really guaranteed a job at the end of the line right so uh what is the point of investing three years in uh, well, three years plus your article to uh, law school and become burdened in that kind of debt and work hard and do all that kind of stuff if you can't get a job. Um, and this kind of stems back from the the uh, schools recognizing that they can make a lot of money off law students. We'll use law in this example, the, the, uh, but it's actually applicable in anything. They have, say, 4,000 law school applicants every year, and they accept maybe 200 students. But really, they should only be accepting maybe 40 because you can't continually pump out 200 law students every year because there's not that much of a need for it. Now, that could be a momentary problem. I know that there's this huge influx of human population known as the baby boomers, and they were are set to retire. They turned about 65, the average age of retirement in 2008, I believe, 2008, 2009. So you should see a huge population of people retiring and those jobs becoming available. But it's 2013 and that's not really the case. And the reason is because those retirees lost all their money in the stock market and, and their pension and they can't afford to retire. They can't afford 30 years, let's say if they live till 95, or even 20, 20 years. They can't afford 20 years of unemployment at in this economy where everything's really expensive. So they're staving off retirement to, you know, 70 or until the day they die, right? So anyway, yeah, the next, I don't know if I finished my article um, on the money thing. And this is basically, I don't want to take credit for the article. Like it's my article, like I invented uh, this evolution of money. This this is basically history. It's, it's information that's available to anyone. I just happened to kind of write it down. Um, and I'm not the first. So basically, um, the last one we talked about was fiat currency. Um, the next kind of level, the next evolution uh, that I foresaw was uh, e-currency. And we've already kind of seen situations like Bitcoin, where you basically have a certain amount of e-currency in circulation. Therefore, you can't print it. So it kind of curbs inflation. And so, yeah, this is, you know, a really interesting model because, um, number one, you can't continue to pump new currency into the market. Well, you could, but let's say idealistically you couldn't. You had a certain amount of money, let's say $20 billion in circulation. Let's even go as far as saying that, you know, and I talk about this in my book, uh, The Art of the Hustle, which is a fiction book, but I basically... Um, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but I basically talk about the concept of an e-currency that doesn't inflate and therefore, you know, economies would stabilize and uh, the world would prosper because for two reasons. One, uh, there's no inflation, um, idealistically. And number two is because most nefarious activities are occur discreetly on the black market you exchange cash for a good right for a gun or some drugs but if everything was electronic then there would be a kind of a electronic paper trail so you couldn't necessarily buy a gun because let's say you in order to get paid you have to transfer money from one account to the other uh, but that creates a, a transaction in some ledger somewhere 
where they could say, oh, you know, Bill Simpson paid you $10,000 on June 9th. What was that for? And it wouldn't look too good. So you couldn't really operate under the guise of anonymity. So uh, it might curb black market transactions. This is kind of the speculation. I'm not too sure if that's true. Uh, and there's always going to be people, of course, that try to hack into the system and add more zeros to their bank account. But the good thing, aside from the inflation and the, uh, the you know, uh, curbed black market transactions, is that you wouldn't have money in the hands of the Federal Reserve or governments. You know, it would just be a standard money. Each co- I believe, as I was reading uh, Bitcoin, that each money or each coin, whatever, is uh, numbered, so you can't have duplicates. I think that's really genius. And there's a certain amount of money that goes into the circulation at intervals. So it would account for, you know, increase in population or something like that. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. Um, However, if that doesn't work, then you might see, this is what the article uh, says that I wrote, uh, that you might see a resurgence of the cycle again, starting back at the barter system. You know, if there's hyperinflation and money is worthless, then you'll start trading wheelbarrows for bread and and you'll go through the whole cycle again. You'll start trading new commodities, maybe starting at gold, but this time you won't sever it from, from paper currency, right? Uh, or you wouldn't even re- really need paper because look around, like how, how often do you need cash? Uh, you I buy a lot of my things online, um, get shipped right to my house. I use my credit card and I very rarely use cash and I have to carry it around. It can get lost, destroyed, stolen. Uh, I have to go to the bank to get more of it when it runs out. It's really inefficient, right? And it costs money to produce even like the penny. We just abolished that in Canada in 2012 because it costs more money to produce than it's worth. And I think that's true in the States as well. It, It seems like it would have to. But, but that's kind of true of all currency, if you think about it. I mean, we don't really need that money. It's it's all, elect- most transactions are done electronically. We just shift numbers around, right? So earlier I talked about the old model of going to school, getting a job, getting an education, uh, working hard, saving money, buying a house, uh, retiring, blah, blah, blah. That model is flawed. Okay, well, what's the replacement model? Uh, I think, number one, it starts with financial education, Um so you can be more educated about how much money is coming in. So you don't necessarily rely on paychecks, uh, which is, I mentioned, the most taxed income. Instead, you kind of have a diversified portfolio. You hear that a lot, right? Oh, have a diversified portfolio. And most people think they know what that means. They say, oh, yeah, that means uh, in terms of stocks, you know, have a bit of commodities, a bit of uh, energy, a bit of maybe um, maybe a bit of like Forex or whatever, and you kind of spread yourself out. I think most people uh, think of diversified portfolio is just another way of saying don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like, don't put all your money into one stock. You know, it's okay to buy Apple and Microsoft and Google and blah, blah, blah. And by doing that, that's a diversified portfolio. Well, that's not necessarily true. That's not a diversified portfolio because you have all your money in, yes, different stocks, but it's all paper assets, right? Um, You know, this portfolio income. What a true diversified portfolio means is have money in the four kind of different sectors, which are portfolio income, paper assets like stocks, real estate, uh, commodities, and uh, finally a business. So having some sort of small business. So, you know, I think that's probably um, maybe outside of the means of a lot of people for a number of reasons. One, I don't think a lot of people are are uh, business savvy enough to really go out there and, you know, carve their own niche into the world and start a business that takes a lot of work and a lot of drive. And the second thing is, I don't think people are educated. A lot of people enter business. I, I watch on the uh, the Shark Tank, for instance, or Dragon's Den, whatever country you happen to be in. And these people have a product and they have no clue about business. They didn't bother to learn the numbers. And it's shocking, right? It's like, why would you go into business? And there's some people, you'll see this all the time, where they'll 
you know, the, the sharks will ask them, uh, or dragons, they'll ask them, well, how much money did you invest? It's like, oh, I've invested over, you know, $100,000 into this company, and I've taken a second mortgage on my home, and I borrowed from my, my parents' retirement fund. It's like, are you are you an idiot? I mean, that's not a good product to have, right? They, they just basically lack the foresight to know what a good product is and what it's not a good product. Um, and not saying that I know or whatever, but I would probably advise to do more research and educate yourself so you are more you have more tools equipped to make those kinds of judgments right it would be kind of silly to risk all that money without the certainty of payoff that's like walking into the woods uh with no flashlight in the middle of the night and with no compass and not having a clue and just kind of hoping for the best and that can work out in some cases, like Richard Branson and Mark Zuckerberg. But are you Richard Branson or Mark Zuckerberg? Probably not, right? So got to get your education right and and basically challenge some of the adages or assumptions that you have grown up with, right? Like maybe I shouldn't get a job and work for somebody for 40, 50 years. Maybe that's not a good move for me. Um, one of my articles I wrote for Elite Daily, it's called, Is Safe the New Risky? I interview the best-selling financial author, MJ DeMarco. And if you haven't read his book, The Millionaire Fast Lane, you should definitely read it um, because he's, it's filled with really useful information. And um, basically, he talks about roadmaps to wealth. And one of them, well, basically, he talked about three different roadmaps to wealth. There's the sidewalk, which he claims most people are on most kind of poor people. And then there's the slow lane, which is a way to become a millionaire, but it's very slow. Like you can work hard and save your money and buy a few properties. And over 50 years, you might become a millionaire. That That is true. That's one way to do it. And then there's the fast lane, which is a way to basically accelerate your revenue. Uh, I don't think he uses the word exponentially, but just essentially at a rapid rate, like somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, who essentially became a billionaire overnight. So which which is kind of the epitome of the fast lane, like some somebody who's making a lot of money, very short amount of time. Most people are in the slow lane or the sidewalk where they rely on their labor to make money, their earned income. So they can only make money when they're working. As soon as they stop working, the money stops coming in. Uh, what you should try to focus on, according to MJ DeMarco, is multiple revenue streams and money that works for you, money that can come in while you don't have to work. So uh, real estate income, uh, portfolio income, uh, maybe an invention of a product or something like that. And you can license that out so you get that, those royalties coming in, uh, things like that. Yeah, he basically says that... Um, graduation is not the end of education it's the beginning and I really love that quote because I think a lot of people uh, feel like they get over this mountain like you know they're climbing this mountain of uh, you know getting a degree and then once they're at the top they're like ah you know they can relax where you know he's basically talking about it's like no that's just the beginning you have to constantly uh, keep learning and educate yourself uh, you know because the rules um, of the marketplace continue to change or you need to kind of plug up gaps in your knowledge. And um, the last question I ask him is, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about leaving their profession and entering a startup venture? He says, be driven by the need to solve a problem better than the rest. Look to alleviate someone's pain, resolve some inefficiency, create convenience or change someone's life. Essentially be market-centered, not self-centered. And I think that's great. He went on to say that, you know, nobody cares about your passion or how much you deserve this. Or, you know, I, I see that constantly on the Shark Tank or Dragon's Den where people are, are crying, like, oh, I want this so bad. I've worked so hard. Well, I mean, nobody cares. It's unfortunately the marketplace. It's it's irrelevant. They only care about uh, value. Right. So how your your product or service is only valuable in how it benefits other people. And if it can't do that, then unfortunately, it doesn't belong there, right? So, you know, the reason why this kind of stuff is important to me is because, you know, I'm 31. I'm kind of at that age where, um, you know, I need to start planning for retirement. You know, I'm not in my 20s where I can, you know, go to school and, you know, go traveling and that kind of stuff. You know, I still do traveling and uh, and whatnot. But no, no, the point is I have to kind of start seriously uh, thinking about this stuff and planning a strategy. And I have huge worries about uh, the future because of 
some of the things I talked about, about hyperinflation, about uh, baby boomers not retiring, about about people living longer. You know, modern medicine can keep people alive longer, but most people are, you know, overweight or, uh, you know, have some other health problems. It's a drain on the healthcare system. And a lot of jobs are becoming obsolete, right? You know, you don't need a cashier anymore. You have a automated cashier. So, you know, that's just one example. But, um, you know, even like car manufacturers, nobody's buying Ford or Chevy or American cars because they're not efficient, right? Um, especially gas gas cars. If you're buying a brand new gas car in 2013, you know, I'm not too sure what to tell you, right? Like, if you need something to get around and you have 3000 bucks, yeah, by all means, buy a combustion gas uh, vehicle. But in the future, and probably in the near future, uh, when oil uh, becomes more and more scarce, uh, you can't rely on gasoline to uh, power everything. And if you don't know, oil, basically, uh, gasoline is a derivative of oil, and oil is runs essentially everything right unless we invest in cleaner energy uh we can't really get out of this mess and we can't and it seems to be the case that there's powers that be that stand to make a ton of money i think i heard a quote that oil is a 600 trillion dollar business and in order to and i'm not too sure the context of that is it 600 trillion left in the ground or is that a year or in total or something like that i'm not too sure but my point is it's a lot of money and the people that own the oil reserves or whoever stands to benefit from oil is going to a be opposed to any sort of legislation or any kind of system that is is counterproductive to that method of energy let's call it and number two uh, they have the money to buy off government officials and pay lobbyists and and being a lobbyist is kind of a creepy thing because these people are uh, paid millions of dollars and they're not just people like me and you they're people that have worked in Washington on Capitol Hill for 15 years you know at some very high level they have a huge Rolodex of contacts in government, and then they work at a lobby firm, right? You see how dangerous that can be? This person already knows everybody, and they're paid a million dollars or maybe sometimes more or whatever to sway the government to enact laws or to keep things illegal. Now, you could say this is a little bit of a conspiracy, but you know, I don't think so. I think that's pretty evident uh, in the case of you know cigarettes being legal and marijuana being illegal. I mean, cigarettes are killing people and alcohol is killing people, yet no politicians ever talk about that, right? Why is that? Because those people have a lot of money, the the heads of uh, tobacco companies and the head of pharmaceutical companies that are putting out uh, drugs that keep people sick or, you know, they... You know, my my doctor friend kind of uh, didn't wasn't so uh, cynical as I was, but you know, I think that um, it would be impossible not to be greedy when you're um, making money off lifestyle drugs, and you could easily, or not easily, but let's say you could cure a disease, but there's no money in curing diseases, right? Uh, there's money in lifestyle drugs, drugs that you constantly need your entire life. So the point is, with oil, they want people to be on oil, and there's this documentary called Who Killed the E1 or EV1 or something like that. It came out, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever, about who killed the electric car, essentially. This uh, car, I believe, is made by Honda or Toyota or something like that. But so the human race can't really evolve to the next level because the people who control the oil also control the politicians who control the legislation. So we're going to be hooked up to this system and they're going to be sucking the money out of us until we're living in shanty towns. And that's really kind of scary, right? Uh, scary because I think within our lifetime, or not our, but my lifetime, I think we will see a huge revolution, a huge turnaround. If you look at the root of the word is to revolve, a, a huge shift or turn around in the way things are done. And we've already seen that, right? We've seen the internet uh, basically turn everything upside down. 
but I predict that there will be some kind of massive cataclysmic paradigm shift where um, the government is no longer needed in the same way. You know, we... I can't remember if I talked about this on another podcast, but you basically have um, a bunch of people that have different interests and they can't all go to Washington to argue their position. So they hire a congressman on their behalf, elective representative, and this basically happens in every country that is a democracy. And those representatives go to Washington and represent on their behalf. It's much more efficient but we don't necessarily need the, the congressman anymore. Or in Canada, I think it's called a member of parliament. We don't need those people anymore. They're obsolete. We could just represent ourselves online. And, uh, Socrates, I'm doing a podcast. What? What do you need? And number two, so not only are they obsolete, number two is that uh, they don't represent the interest of the people. You know, a lot of people will will go to the congressman and say, hey, why don't you make marijuana legal? Why don't you make this? Why are you taking away our rights? Why are you doing this? And they don't listen, right? The, the government will just do whatever they want. And I think in in the future, it'll get so bad that I think the people will recognize how much power they really have. They can change things on a number of levels. Number one, they can vote with their dollar. So if a company is like, you know, being creepy in some way, being unethical, like Monsanto, or they're being unethical to animals or something like that, and nobody gives them business, uh, that company has to change their ways or they're going to die very quickly because they have such high overhead costs, right? Um, And that's basically the same thing that can happen to politicians. If you don't do what we say, then you're not going to get elected again, right? The only kind of problem is that the people that get into power, it's kind of crazy because in the uh, example of United States election where you had President Obama and Mitt Romney, you can't vote for Mitt Romney. There's just no way. He's a fucking nutcase, right? Um, And he doesn't represent, he could be the, he's the furthest thing from the people. He's a wacky billionaire who is a Mormon and is, has shown a kind of disdain for poor people can't vote for that guy or the other alternative is obama which is a basically uh a puppet for the elitists like you know the 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 bankers of the world he's enacting creepy laws like the national defense authorization act and all that kind of stuff you it's hard to vote for that guy too but you kind of vote for the lesser of evils and the reason why it's set up like that there's a number of reasons but the people that are groomed for those positions are people that are willing to play ball, essentially. You know, you're not going to be in a position where you can win a major election unless you've been shown to be corruptible. And the people that get to choose are the corrupt people. So it seems like you're going to have constantly these resurgence of corrupt people, you know, in this kind of escalator fashion. They're just constantly going to come through the doors. That's a problem. Uh, but I think that it could, they could change when things get so bad that the the people are just you know they've had enough and and back to the future i, I think it's really worrisome and, and it's important and the reason i did this podcast is to maybe uh, shed some light on the future if you don't recognize how bad things are got have gotten the economy uh, is is in shambles and i think it will only get worse um the, the market isn't really rebounding like it should um and, you know, I mentioned earlier that people are living longer and they're more of a burden on the healthcare system. People are staving off retirement. The cost of living is going up. Uh, pension plans are broke, which is essentially a Ponzi scheme. If you think about it, you have a Ponzi scheme as you have, you know, uh, new investors paying off old investors. That's the same thing as a pension, right? You have, you need new young people paying into pensions to pay off the old people. And that's really kind of crazy. Uh, China is now the richest, was, you know, say in 1954, was one of the poorest countries in the world. Now it's one of the richest countries in the world. And, you know, they're asking for the U.S. dollar to no longer be the reserve currency of the world. So if that happens, uh, that is going to change everything. That is going to be a cataclysmic disaster. And uh, not just for America, but all the people that trade with America because 
America is a huge importer of goods. And if they don't have any money, they can support your economy, essentially, right? And I believe it was Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, that warned the government on like his last day of presidency. He says, beware of the dangers of the military industrial complex, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But um, if you really look at some of the numbers of how much money is being funneled into the uh, U.S. military, uh, it doesn't really make sense. You could use so much of that money to, you know, educate people for free or, you know, put programs back into school uh, like, you know, wrestling programs or uh, martial art programs or, you know, more better computers or, or something like that. Uh, but they don't do that. And I think that a lot of people are getting left behind, right? Their education is becoming obsolete and the old economy is not coming back. I, I think that they're they're waiting for things to kind of pick up again. And I don't think it will. I think unemployment will continue to rise and people become replaced by machines or more uh, cheaper labor uh, pool. Um, and, you know, it'll just become a, a greater divide between the haves and the have-nots. And it could be to the point, if you are not positioned uh properly that you live in some shanty town you know may you know like picture like uh district nine i think that was filmed in uh, johannesburg in south africa or uh, yeah south africa and you basically have you know boards and tarps and that's what you live and there's millions of people that live like that and you just try to make ends meet and just try to get by it's it's not too far from the realm of possibility right actually i think it's cape town not johannesburg so yeah, the the crash of uh, you know two thousand eight two thousand nine is a lot different than you know prior crashes. You can't necessarily equate this to some cyclical fluctuation that just happens. I think this is much worse. It could even get to a depression because a lot of the big industries are dying, right? Because of the internet, it's essentially changing everything. Um, that's number one. Number two, there's tons of toxic dollars into the economy. The dollar will eventually go down to its original value, which is zero. I think that's a famous quote. I have to look that up. But it's true. I mean, if the dollar is just uh, monopoly money, it's fake money. It, it's its only value is what people confer into it. But it's becoming so toxic that it's actually bankrupting the government and. Unemployment will continue to rise, and the paradox of thrift, it will continually to get worse. And I don't see a way out of it. Unless you do two things. Uh, one, you have to abolish the Fed. That seems really obvious. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, you have to get on board with some new form of currency that's uninflatable, if that's possible. Uh, the second thing you need to do is have new energy sources. You have to get off oil and get onto greener energy like solar or maybe some other new energy that we don't know yet that comes from some alien technology, who knows. But uh, that will make things more efficient, um, more affordable, and also create new jobs. But essentially, I mean, that's no easy task. Essentially what I'm saying is that you have to destroy the old system and rebuild a new system, and that is incredibly difficult. Because there's a lot of people that have vested interest in that not happening, right? <clears throat> people essentially at the elite, the top level. Um, Socrates, what? Um, so yeah, I basically deal with this. I've got a new book coming out. It's called Prodigy, and it should be released uh, by the summer. And I deal with a lot of these issues. It's a fiction book. It's essentially 100 years in the future. And it was a very difficult book for me to write because I wanted to essentially write, well, what happens if this thing collapses, which it looks like it will. The, I didn't spend a lot of time in the history because that's kind of boring. I kind of picked up 100 years later. And what I envisioned, I had to, I had to rethink everything. I had to rethink commerce, the government, um, the education system, uh, money. Uh, I had to rethink everything. And it was v not to mention uh, the, the technology. It would be like, you know, somebody typing at your computer. I'd be like, well, they probably won't be using keyboards. Um, somebody, you know, twisting a doorknob to open a door. Well, no, they'll probably have something better than that. So I had to constantly stop myself at every preconceived notions of how things work in my time. And I had to reinvent them in a hundred years later, which is incredibly difficult. And 
I figured I would get it completely wrong, so I didn't really focus on that kind of stuff. Um, I did a little bit where it was necessary, but um, I basically focused on the plot. Uh, but, you know, the world that they live in is completely different because I essentially say that this economy collapses, things get really bad, and there's a World War III. You know, nuclear bombs are dropped, uh, people become incredibly desperate, and all hell breaks loose, the government breaks down, the money breaks down. But the saving grace in it all, and I put this in my book, and I truly believe this, is the people being born today and people, you know, even of my generation who grew up a little bit more tolerant of uh, other people's ideologies and other people's religions. And uh, we grew up with the internet for for the most part. And, uh, um you know, the information, the access to information is out there. I think we're less religious than we were uh, in our parents' generation, and they were less religious than the grandparents' generation. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with religion other than its adamant refusal to accept progressive ideas. And by that, I mean, if, say, Christianity came out and said, okay, we don't think the world is 4,000 years old or 10,000 years old, whatever they say, we are willing to admit that we got some stuff wrong, right? There's clearly evidence in places like Gobleke Tepe and even Egypt that predate what this book says. Uh, we are also willing to admit that maybe a man and a man should get married, despite what it says in this book. Uh, we're willing to make some amendments. However, the core tenets of our belief, you know, be kind to your neighbor, uh, don't covet thy neighbor's goods, uh, thou shall not kill, blah, blah, blah. Those are still good. But uh, the way it kind of restricts people and controls people and makes people fight over one another, uh, especially in other kind of fundamentalist religions, is very dangerous and very damaging. So I think that the saving grace in all this would be human beings that are born, let's say, today. So a baby born in 2013 will be 40 years old in 2053, right? And they will never know a world without the internet. They should be, this is all speculation, of course, but they should be uh, really tolerant to other ideologies. They'll be tolerant to other races. Um, I think a lot of the problems stem from old white people. I'll even go further to old white men who are really ignorant, really set in their ways, come from a completely different era. I mean, like, consider somebody who's born today and John McCain. I mean, there couldn't be any more different. They're like a completely different species, right? So somebody who grows up around computers and finances and understands, you know, um, different cultures and information is abundant. When those people are starting to head governments and to head corporations and to uh, enact policies, I think the world will get better. We will kind of abandon all the archaic kind of th ways of thinking, all the archaic laws, and we will rebuild anew, you know, instead of having a dam made of like, you know, a beaver dam made of like sticks and stones and mud. And, you know, if there's a leak or something, you, you put another stick on it and you patch it up. You're trying to fix a flawed system. The new model is, is to completely destroy the sticks and get rid of all that stuff and build a a cement dam using concrete and steel or, you know, in this example, you have, it's basically uh, what I'm trying to get at is that you, instead of patching up the old system and retrofitting it, you completely scrap it and you rewrite it. You rewrite all the laws. You give power and rights back to people. Uh, it's crazy how the government thinks they're kind of daddy and they want to, uh, you know, there's this paternalistic kind of um, nature where they try to think that uh, they know better than we do and they try to tell us what to do and take away our rights and spy on us and uh, not disclose information. It's like, that's crazy. It's like you people in the government are no better off than us. You just are some dummy in a suit that got elected because your corrupt buddies uh, paved the way for you and you don't know better than us, right? I just think that the only problem right now that we have is not that you know, the government knows better than us, but a lot of people just become really complacent. You know, they're bombarded with information and they don't see how things, they kind of become desensitized to uh, the travesties. There's this um, really great 
uh, I don't know what it's called, an analogy where um, you put a frog in boiling water and he jumps out. Uh, but if you put the frog in a pot of cold water and you slowly boil it, he doesn't recognize the change and eventually he dies. He doesn't jump out. Um, I think that basically categorize, you know, better sums up what people are going through. Um, it's not that the frog doesn't know better. It's just that he can't necessarily see the change coming about. And unless people really wake up and enact change and jump out of the water, then really nothing will change. And that's a huge problem. So, you know, people are really um, complacent and they don't enact change and, uh, you know, they're bombarded with information. So if somebody says, hey, did you know this problem in, you know, Rwanda or this problem in Bahrain or something? They're like, yeah, 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 whatever. How does that affect me? Well, it'll start affecting you. And then those people will start to, you'll basically wake an angry giant and those people will demand change. And I think it will eventually get better. You know, in the past, we're kind of repeating the same things in terms of like, you know, domination and getting an army together and fighting over everything. And I think that that model is driven by ego and it's flawed. I think we have to evolve past that. And I think now is the time considering the acceleration of human growth in the last decade has basically trumped the human growth from the last 50 years and i think it'll only accelerate uh exponentially from now and it'll only get better that's after it gets worse of course it's going to get really worse so you need to basically educate yourself and prepare yourself for that and there's um you know kind of a checklist so to speak that you can kind of ask yourself to evaluate whether you're set up for that kind of climate right so um you know, if you are being paid by a paycheck, uh, primarily, uh, that could be very dangerous for a number of reasons. One, because it's only one source of uh, income. Two, because it gets taxed the most. Uh, three, because your job could could become obsolete, and there'd be so many more people qualified for that job, it uh, drives your wage down, and now you can't support yourself. So that's a really big problem. If you have multiple streams of revenue. Uh, that is much better. Also, if you have multiple streams of revenue, you can you can get money twenty four seven. As soon as you you know you don't need to work for money. You can have these assets or money work for you, so you constantly have money coming in. And the last one, I've maybe touched on it, is you know whether you're becoming obsolete. Are you expanding your knowledge? Are you working in a sector that could become uh, a dying you know like a dinosaur? Or are you in a kind of progressive, forward-thinking company that is moving forward and uh, won't be left behind, essentially? So, yeah, that's basically all I have to talk about. But hopefully it will kind of inspire you to, you know, research a little bit about this stuff or educate yourself on how you could be doing things differently and preparing yourself for the future because... I wouldn't want to see people ignorant or complacent and then be left behind because, you know, well, who'd want to see that? That's that's really kind of sad, right? So that's all I have to say. You can check me out at my website, edwardmullen.com. Um, my two books are available on Amazon, The Art of the Hustle and Destiny and Free Will. And... My blog, the world-famous Plato's Academic blog, is platosacademic.wordpress.com, also found on my website. I'm also on Twitter at Writer Mullen, and I have YouTube channels, of course, my podcast. Uh, Reach out to me anytime. You can contact me on my website at edward at edwardmullen.com. There's also a form there if you like forms. Uh, It can be added to my mailing list to find out the latest information on all my latest projects. I have tons of stuff coming out in 2013, uh, including uh, three new books, short stories, podcasts, videos, vlogs, and uh, more articles, more blogs. So if you're not already following me on Twitter, please do so and subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to all the stuff I do and reach out to me. All right. Thank you.